Welcome, welcome, everybody. We are wrapping up our Job class. So this is, if memory serves me, uh, lesson 17 in in our study. And I want to zoom in on God's response to Job and to Job's friends. So there's been quite a whirlwind of interaction. Um, So Job starts with a lament in chapter 3, basically wishing he had never been born. And then we move into those three dialogue cycles with his friends, uh, with Elihu being the, the last friend, kind of a fourth friend that jumps in to share his perspective. Uh, I hope that uh, you found Walton's ideas helpful with those three dialogues. So, and, and I'm really curious your thoughts on his take on Job chapter 19, when Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. So that, that definitely probably was uh, a new take. I don't know if you guys knew where that, that passage was, uh, but uh, yeah, it's from Job 19. Uh, so that was, uh, I, I appreciate his thoughts on that. So I, I find those thoughts pretty helpful myself. But um, Job's going to chime in here in, uh, sorry, God's going to chime in in these last couple chapters. And we're, I, I want to read an article from the Bible Project that I'll, I'll post for you guys summarizing the ideas. Because if, if you can, take a second and just look at those chapters in Job. I think it's chapters. It starts on chapter 38, doesn't it? So starting in Job chapter 38. Yeah, the Lord answers out of the whirlwind. Uh, I actually remember guys being uh, at a a Bible study years ago uh, at a local church, and they were using the book of Job to make a case for essentially um, a, um, a prosperity gospel. And I, and this Bible study was using Job's friends' counsel to make a case in this Bible study that uh, God wants to bring financial blessing into our lives and, and health. So those will be things that I'll address a little bit more in the next class, the last class, because Job gets restored and he gets all his stuff back um, and uh, a family. So we'll, we'll process it then. But this is God's commentary on Job and his friends. Look, He says in verse 2, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? I will question you, and you make it known to me. So God is clearly critiquing the so-called wisdom of his friends and Job's. Because uh, remember, we have the triangle of claims here. We have either uh, something has gone wrong, according to Job and his friends. Either 
Job's righteousness is at fault. That's what his friends think. Uh, or God's justice is at fault. That seems to be what Job thinks. But never is the retribution principle at fault. And I think the book of Job is critiquing the retribution principle, that ideology of that day that I think very much parallels the prosperity gospel of our day, that uh, God uh, will bless your life if you are faithful to him. He will bless you financially. He will bless you with health. Um, and I think God is critiquing all that. How does he do it? Look at chapter 38. He just starts asking questions. And the questions all have to do with creation. So he starts in verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So there we have the, the sons of God showing up again who were present in Job chapter 1 uh, with uh, the Satan coming into God's presence. And now here they're mentioned in Job 38, verse 7. And God will continue talking about creation. And so what, what is God doing by never answering Job? He'll never tell Job well, actually what went down with the Satan and, and him. So what do we make of that? What, what is the point of the book? Um, what is God getting at here? Why is he talking about creation? Why is he just asking tons of questions? And he'll go through a series of them uh, in these two chapters. And Job will uh, say, I spoke too soon. Uh, I will cover my mouth. He says in Job 40, verse 4, I've spoken once. I will not and uh, I will not answer twice, and I will proceed no further. But God is not done. So in chapter 40, God says, dress for action like a man. Here we go. Round two. Um, will you even put me in the wrong? God says in Job 40, verse 8, will you condemn me that you may be right? And so off we go. And, and God will now talk about the behemoth and the leviathan. So those are going to be the two creatures that he ends his speech with. Um, and then Job will respond. So I'll, I'll save chapter 42 to, to our next lesson. But uh, for now, we kind of get a sense of where we're at in the book. And here's a, an article, uh, a blog from Tim Mackey that, that I find really helpful. So let me read this to you guys. So God's response to Job's questions about suffering. The subtitle is God knows exactly what he's doing. And maybe as I read this, guys, there's, there's something here that can function as a, a comfort for you as you think about your perspective of God. In this blog, we'll explore the final chapters of the book of Job, which are puzzling and profound. To gain some content for this essay, it would help to read our previous blog where we looked at the book's introduction and the dialogue Job has with his friends about the meaning of his suffering. Eventually, Job and his friends have nothing to say to each other anymore. 
and Job takes up his final position before God in chapters 28 through 31. He laments the days of his past when his body was healthy and his life filled with family and friends. His present suffering is no longer endurable, and he demands that God provide an explanation. That's in chapter 31, verses 35 through 37. And so, after enduring the long-winded words of Elihu, God himself speaks up and responds to Job in a series of speeches that form the climax of the book so far. That's Job 38 through 41. God offers two responses. The first offers a virtual tour of the cosmos in chapters 38 and 39. And God asks Job all of these impossible questions like, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Have you ever commanded uh, the days uh, and the morning light? Where does light live? Where does darkness reside? Can you lead out a constellation in its season? And of course, the correct response to all these questions is for Job to say, uh, nope, I don't command the universe. I don't know the answer to any of these questions. No, I've only lived a short time. God's first point. The point seems to be this. Job claimed that God had fallen asleep at the wheel in running the universe. And because of this divine neglect, he had to endure unjust suffering. God's response is indirect, and it shows how his attention is actually on every single detail of the operations of the universe. In fact, God is privy to all kinds of perspectives and details that Job has never even imagined and never will. Following the cosmic tour, God takes Job on a corresponding virtual tour of part of the world he actually does inhabit the earth. And he asks Job if he ever provided food for lions or seen an isolated mountain goat give birth. No? Well, perhaps Job understands the feeding patterns of wild donkeys that roam the hills or ostriches and their strange ways of caring for their young. Maybe Job and God can have a stimulating conversation about Job's knowledge of war horses and the aerodynamics of an eagle soaring on thermal air currents. As it turns out, Job doesn't know as much as he thought, even about the world he lives in and should be familiar with. At the end of God's invitations to dialogue, Job comes up short in his first response. Uh, this is Job 40, verses 3 through 5. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, I won't answer even twice. I'll add nothing more. God has made his first point. Job's many accusations of divine neglect or incompetence have failed. As it turns out, God is intimately familiar with every molecule and creature in his world, and he knows more about them than Job can comprehend. This is an important moment in the story so far. Whatever reasons God has for allowing Job's suffering, which of course Job doesn't know, and you and I do, <clears throat> um, Job never does find out the reason why he suffered, and neither, oh, well they say here, neither does the reader. Yeah, I guess in an ultimate sense, we don't know the reason. 
The goal of the book was to never offer us that information. Rather, the first divine speech makes clear that God does know everything that transpires in his world, and his perspective on the universe has a wider range than any human will ever have. When Job critiqued God's knowledge and ability, it was based on limited horizons of his life experience. His brain only has a finite capacity to understand cause and effect from his point of view. God's perspective is infinitely broader, which means he may allow or orchestrate events that from one perspective look morally suspicious or or just plain wrong. However, from a wider perspective, those same events look entirely different. It's similar to a child observing their parent throw a chair at a window to shatter it. From the six-year-old's point of view, this is precisely the kind of behavior that would earn a timeout, a grounding, or worse. But if the parent knows there's smoke coming from the adjacent room and that this window was the only way out, all of a sudden the broken window becomes a life-saving escape route. The parent has a wider range of available information that makes the same action, throwing a chair out of the window, become a morally necessary thing to do. This seems to be the point of God's first first speech. There may be evil and suffering in God's good world that from one perspective may seem needless, tragic, and unjust, but from a wider vantage point, there may be a vast network of factors that make the same tragedy fit into a larger cause-effect pattern that brings out the saving of many lives. It's possible, it's impossible for any human to know such things or have such a perspective. This means all of our claims to evaluate God's rule over human history are always limited and will therefore fall short. I don't have a wide enough vantage point to accuse God of incompetence, and I never will. This isn't a particularly pleasant fact to realize for Job or for any of us. It's an inescapable reality of being human. We are finite and our brains and sensory abilities are not designed to take in the information necessary to make evaluations of God's choices. We are not God. We're not, or we're, we're human. God's second point. After Job confesses his arrogance, God responds again, this time inviting Job to take up the divine throne and run the universe for a day. Let Job enforce this strict retribution principle he thinks God ought to use in directing the cosmos. Clothe yourself with honor and majesty, God says to Job in chapter 40, verses 10 through 12. Pour out your anger to overflowing and look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble and tread down the wicked where they stand. Job will find the task impossible. It would require a second-by-second micromanagement approach that would would essentially result in no more human beings on the planet. Job doesn't know what he's asking for when he demands that God use the strict principle of retribution to reward every good deed and punish every bad one. In theory, it sounds right. But in execution, it would create a universe where no human would ever have a chance for trial and error or, more importantly, for growth 
and change. This leads to God's final response. He introduces Job to two fantastic creatures, one called behemoth and the other Leviathan. Both are Hebrew words spelled with English letters. Behemoth is a common word for domesticated animals like cows in Deuteronomy 5.14, goats, Leviticus 1.12, or even horses in Nehemiah 2.12. But in this case, the word describes a river creature who lives in the reeds with a gigantic tail and thick bones. It sounds like a hippo with a dinosaur tail. And six, since the, the mid-1600s, this has been a common interpretation. It likely refers to an animal that was little known to the author and so was able to take on mythical proportions. Perhaps it refers to a now extinct mammal we'll simply never know for certain. Knowing the specific animal will not get us any closer to God's point in bringing up behemoth in the first place. God's purpose in mentioning this creature is its meaning. I like that point. Here is a gigantic and dangerous beast that lives in splendid isolation from any human interference. God loves it. It's called the chief of God's ways in the world, Job 40, verse 19. It's just the setup creature leading us to an even more fantastic and powerful beast, the Leviathan. God loves to brag about the Leviathan. I cannot keep silent about its limbs, God says in Job 41.12. We know from many other biblical and ancient Near Eastern texts, the Leviathan was a common figure in the people's imaginations of that day. It lived in the deep oceans, leaving a huge wake of churning froth. Job 41, 31 through 32. Its skin was impenetrable to human weapons, breathed fire. Like Behemoth, we know the Leviathan was a creature living within the boundaries of the real and mythical for ancient people. Elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible and ancient Babylonian literature, Leviathan was a mythical symbol of violence and chaos in God's world. See Psalm 74, 14, and Isaiah 27, 1. This concept certainly emerged from the sporadic contact ancient sailors had with immense, dangerous ocean creatures that were little known and greatly feared. The biblical authors, including the author of Job, has done deep theological reflection on the existence of such creatures in God's world. Leviathan poses no threat to God and is certainly not a rival God, as Egyptians believed. See the docile Leviathan of Psalm 104.26. All of this background helps us understand God's point in bringing up Leviathan. God asks Job if he's able to pull in Leviathan with a fishing pole or take it home as a pet. God counsels Job to do no such thing because Leviathan is the kind of animal that will bite your arm without a second thought. And notice this important point. Leviathan is not evil or bad. Nowhere in this speech is Leviathan called wicked or unfortunate or described as a sad consequence of sin or the fall. Oh, that's a fascinating comment there. Just the opposite. Leviathan is beloved by God, a wonderful creature of great power and might. God is proud of this animal and apparently thinks it belongs in this world. Just don't touch it or it'll annihilate you. This is fascinating. 
Here's a creature that will ruin your life if you happen upon it, but God loves it. Why does God even bring this up at all? Apparently, God's world is ordered enough for the human project to flourish, but chaos has not been eradicated entirely from God's world. The tohu vavohu, which is Hebrew for formless and void in Genesis 1-2, wilderness wasteland of Genesis 1 wasn't eliminated when God made the world. I'm going to read that again, guys. Apparently, God's world is ordered enough for the human project to flourish, but chaos has not been eradicated entirely from God's world. The formless and void wilderness wasteland of Genesis 1 wasn't eliminated when God made the world. Rather, a space for garden order was carved out and given to humans who are commissioned to spread out divine order further out. Leviathan is out there, raw and dangerous, and you might encounter it. It has the power to wreak havoc on your life, but what you cannot conclude from a run-in with Leviathan is that God is punishing you or that this creature is evil. Neither is the case. You just bumped into Leviathan, and it unleashed chaos, tooth and claw, into your life and your body. The overall point. Hebrew Bible scholar John Walton puts it this way in his commentary on Job. God's answer to Job does not explain why righteous people suffer, because the cosmos is not designed to prevent righteous people from suffering. Job questioned God's design, and God responded that Job had insufficient knowledge to do so. Job questions God's justice, and God responded that Job needs to trust him. And he should not arrogantly think that God can be domesticated to conform to Job's feeble perceptions of how the cosmos should run. That's a great line. God asks for trust, not understanding, and states the cosmos is founded on his wisdom, not his justice. How about that? Remember, guys, I said that Job is a wisdom book. It's about wisdom. Remember the, the hymn, in Job 28, because the fear of the Lord is wisdom. Human pain and suffering does not always happen as clear consequence of anyone's sin. There may be a reason, there may not be. God himself said that Job's suffering was not warranted for any reason, Job chapter two, verse three. The conversation with the Satan certainly did not provide a reason. That dialogue simply set the stage for the real question of the book. Does God operate the universe? according to the principle of retribution? The answer to the story is no. Sometimes terrible things happen for no reason discernible to any human. The point is that God's world is very good, but it is not perfect or always safe. Boy, don't you hear uh, uh, Lucy from Narnia saying that. No, sorry, Mr. or Mrs. Beaver saying that about Aslan. It has the order and beauty, but it's also wild and sometimes dangerous, like the two fantastic creatures he avows. So back to the big question of Job's or anyone's suffering, why is there suffering in the world? Whether from earthquakes, there's actually one in Iceland, um, uh, there's a, a volcano about to erupt, guys. Uh, there's been like 1,400 earthquakes or tremors in the last 24 hours there. Um, whether from earthquakes or wild animals or from one another. Uh, 
God doesn't explain why. He says we live in an incredibly complex, amazing world that at this stage at least is not designed to prevent suffering. That's God's response. Job challenged God's justice, and God responded that Job doesn't have sufficient knowledge about the complex universe to make such a claim. God demanded a full explanation. Sorry, Job demanded a full explanation from God, and what God asks Job for is trust in his wisdom and character. So Job responds with humility and repentance. He apologizes for accusing God of injustice and acknowledges that he overstepped his bounds. And all of a sudden, the book concludes with a short epilogue. And I'm gonna I'm gonna pause there. Um, there, I'll maybe I'll read that little clip, uh, and I'll talk about the epilogue of the book in our in our next lesson. Sorry, I went over five minutes here, but I I thought that was a really helpful and well written article to conclude the the book of Job, the point of Job. Um, so the, the Bible Project takes the angle of focusing on the retribution principle. I think another way to think about it, and they're complementary totally, is to say that the, the book of Job is wondering, will Job trust and fear God with no benefits? Is he just doing it to get stuff? And... So I, I think in a way you could see Job gets vindicated um, here. So I don't, I don't remember him reading that he wants his stuff back. Um, so do, do people fear God simply for stuff? Um, is that how this relationship with God works? Uh, or do we fear God? Do we love God for who we know him to be? And I think that's a, another great way to think about the book of Job. Um, and it's, I think it's a great thing for us to think about in our posture and our mentality and relationship towards God. Mm-hmm.